You may be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. Something that I don't usually talk about uh, in, in front of the church on a Sunday morning is how the, the preaching process works for me, but I get the question a lot. You know, how do you, how do you get ready for a sermon? How many hours do you put into it? And I, I think it works to kind of talk about that a little bit this morning at the beginning here. Um, I look at sermon prep in kind of like three stages. And, and this has been a development for me over the last few years, but I've kind of been able to put words to it now. Um, Monday, I, I start studying, and I, and I dig into the text. You put about eight hours into study, study, study. You know, you, you write a bunch of thoughts down. You, you, take a, you take a blank piece of paper, and you're writing everything that comes to your mind. And it's just, it's just a mess. It's a beautiful mess, but it's a mess. You know, it's, just all, it's all on there. And on Monday, I'm always kind of like, what am I going to do with all of this? You know, like, I, I have no idea. And then at some point during the week, part two is there's kind of like this inspirational moment that happens where it's like, that's what I'm going to do with the mess. And then you start rearranging like all the puzzle pieces and all the points and, and, and everything comes together. That moment is wonderful. And I always say, God, can I just have that moment on Monday when I'm, I'm writing this thing? You know, like, can I just have that moment? And, and it rarely ever happens. Or I'll even say sometimes, can I have the moment during the week, like uh, maybe like during a work day when I'm in the office, and, and sometimes that happens, but at least three times in the last month, it's come at very interesting times. Uh, if you remember the Joseph uh, sermon that we did a month ago or so, um, and, and I felt really good about that, and, and, but here's what happened. I'm laying in bed, and it's like 11 o'clock at night, and like all these ideas are flooding into my mind, and I'm like, oh my goodness, I've got to do something with this, right? And I'm like, no, nope, it'll be there in the morning, right? It'll be there in the morning when I wake up. Well, it's never there in the morning. You know, if you go to bed and have a great idea, you better write it down because it's not going to be there. It just won't. And so I thought, fine. So I'm, I'm arguing with the Lord until midnight about this whole sermon, and, and the ideas are all there. And so finally I'm like, okay, fine. So I get up at midnight, and between midnight and one, I wrote that thing. You know, like just the whole thing right then. And I'm really glad I did because I had no clue what I remembered from the night before when I woke up. You know, it was, it was gone. It was just gone. Now, uh... I've had interesting moments like that. This one was, this is a great one this week. You'll, you'll like this one. So this week, I had this mess, you know, of all my notes and everything, and, and they're laying out, you know. I even had them, I accidentally left them outside my house overnight, you know, and I was like, oh, I hope it didn't rain last night, otherwise my papers would have gotten really wet. I didn't know what I was going to do. And then, um, and then uh, I think it was Friday, was it Friday night, I think? And my family was watching a show on TV or something, and I was kind of like, ah, oh, I'm not really interested in this. I'm going to hop in the hot tub. So I'm not to the hot tub, right? And I'm sitting there in the hot tub by myself, which, which never happens, never by myself. And it all just like flooded into my mind. I'm like, this was the moment, Friday night. All right, you know? So I get out of the hot tub and I'm writing furiously for like half an hour to an hour. And I'm like, I got it. It's good. I can go to bed now, you know? So um, and I think about those, you know, so, okay. So that's number part two, the inspiration part. And then part three, I'd say, is uh, Saturday night. I always spend two or three hours rehearsing, just rehearsing everything I'm going to say, making sure it's coming out the right way, uh, transitions, illustrations, all that stuff. Um, all that to say, Acts 17 is so interesting to me because, you know, Paul is in the city of Athens and he's walking around and he sees all of these, all of these places of worship. And, 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 and there could be like 
30,000 gods that the people of Athens would worship. I mean, it's like there's more gods than people, you know? Like that, that's how it was for them. And he's seeing all of these altars, and he's thinking about it, and he's like, you know, they got an altar for everybody but Yahweh. And he's walking around, and he's realizing, oh, they have an altar to an unknown God, a God that they don't know just to make sure they don't miss anybody. I know what I'm going to do. And then he just proclaims. He starts speaking to people like he just can't hold back. And here it is. This is the moment, and it's all hitting him. And unfortunately, um, I'm not the Apostle Paul. Uh, I, I was thinking that all this week. You know, I'm comparing myself in some ways there. Maybe I'm, you know, but at the same time, I've been in Romans a lot this week, and it's like Paul. I, I can't even. I can't even hang with you. You know, like it's it's just too much for me. So you're going to get a little bit of Romans today. You're going to get a little bit of Acts 17. And Paul's brilliant, and I'm going to try to do my best to dig into what he is saying to the Athenians this morning. So turn in your Bibles to Acts 17. I will do the same. And let's see. We're going to do verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with them. Some of them asked, What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, He seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship is something unknown I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we're God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. It's a conversation I've had um, occasionally with believers 
I've also had this conversation with skeptics. They will say something like this. How is it fair when we think about all the nations that lived before the time of Christ, they weren't Israel, they weren't God's chosen people, and they never heard about the one true God. How is it fair for God to judge those people that have never heard? The nations. Or the conversation sometimes goes like this. What about the people groups today that have never heard the name of Jesus? They have no clue what will happen to them in the end. And the question's loaded because where they're going with it is, is God fair? Is God just? Because does God hold people accountable for what they do not know and they cannot understand? I've seen at least one person walk away from the faith and it started with this question. So this is one of those big ones and a little bit of this is going to be, this message is going to be apologetics. Actually, a big part of it is like, how do we handle that question of, and we can put the question up on the screen or the statement actually, there is a concern about the fate of the nations that do not know God. Like even, even those of us who trust God and know it will all work out in the end and we're not going to leave the faith, even we want to know, what about those people? I often hear it in membership class we talk about this. It comes up. I wanna, what I want to do this morning then is give you five biblical truths that you can hang on to and chew on, wrestle with, as you think about the nations. They all come from Paul's speech in Athens. They, they all come from this text we're looking at this morning. It's brilliant. It's amazing. There's a couple truths that Paul says that are super deep. And I wrestled with all week, and it took me to Romans, and and I'm like, Paul, I I can't even, you know. (laughs) I'm trying to keep up with you here. Um, The first three are going to be on the lighter side, and the last two will be on the deeper side, so you're all going to buckle your seatbelts, and and we'll be okay. By number four, it's about to get heavy, okay? So, truth number one. God gives good gifts to the nations. This is uh, 24 through 26. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and He just doesn't live in temples built by hands. He's not served by human hands as if He needed anything, because He Himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man He made every nation of men. So here it's saying God is a giver of gifts to people. Like, you don't serve Him, He's serving you. You know, you, you don't say, God, I'm going to do something to add to your existence. I've got I've to do these things because you need them. It's like, no, no, no. We don't give money in the offering because God needs it. All the wealth of the world is His. He's made it all. We, we offer out of gratitude for what He's done, but we don't do it as a way of saying thank you. So, number one is, God gives good gifts. He is the Creator of all things. Paul wants him to know. God made you, and, and just like Jesus said, He causes His rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He causes the sun to shine on the righteous and the unrighteous. I mean, this is the reality. This is Matthew 5.45. God is good even the people who don't deserve it. People are enjoying the lakes today and they have no right to because they're nasty, rotten people in their real life, you know? Okay? Um, But this is our God. And He's good to people. 
even bad people, which is why we can love our enemies, because God does that. So this is Paul's first point. And you probably, my microphone's wiggling around. Love that. Okay, here we go. Um, Truth number two. God created the nations to seek him. I I love this. This is 27. God did this. So so, uh, verse 26 says, From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth, he determined the time set for them in the exact places where they should live. So, so God did the nations thing. God did this. God did this so that men would seek him, perhaps reach out for him, and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. So truth number two, when it comes to nations, God created nations in order that they could seek him. There's a purpose behind it. Now we know where did the nations come from, and you remember your Sunday school classes, right? So you know it was the Tower of... Babel, right? We can put that verse up. This is why it was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the earth. So all the people were coming together, and they were coming together for one purpose, that they might resist God in their pride, make a name for themselves, and build this tower. Even though God told them to spread out, they said, we're going to come together and oppose this God. And God said, if they're going to do this, nothing, nothing they do will be too hard for them. So God confused their languages, and one day they woke up, and it's like, what language are you speaking? I have no idea. What are you saying? I, I don't know. Well, if I can understand you, forget you, and they just started splitting, you know? They just, they just left. If we can't understand each other, we're not going to stay here. And part of that is judgment. But I look at Acts, and Paul is saying, this is grace. It's grace that he spread the nations out. It's grace because God wants each people group to call on Him, and when they were all together, they didn't call on Him. When all the people of the earth were like living in the same place, they were resisting Him. They were opposing Him. And God said, I don't want you to oppose Me. I want you to come to Me. And the only way it's going to happen is to spread you out. I'm going to humble you. And now we know that's the way nations work, right? Like, if we make a move somewhere, we've got to worry about some other nation and what they think about what we're doing. And, and nations kind of keep each other in check. They kind of keep us humble. And we're not united as a world in resisting God. That won't happen until what? The Antichrist comes, right? And then he'll unite the world against God. But we're not there yet because now we have different nations. And that's a good thing. Because in our humility as as a separate nation, we might call out to God and see that we need him. And that's a great, great thing. God designed the nations to seek him. And so we think of like the verse, um, if you seek me and find me, uh, if, you, if you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. I mean, that's the truth. God wants us to seek. He wants to be found. He wants the nations that do not know him to find him. He's not against them. He's for them. That's a great thing to keep in mind. Number three. Truth number three, God is not far from the nations. That's verse 27. Uh, though He is not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are His offspring. Paul's brilliant here, and he starts quoting um, their literature. He quotes their poetry. And like they would write this to Zeus. In Zeus we live and move and have our being. And Paul says, no, it's not Zeus. It's God. It's Jesus Christ. In Him you live and move and have your being. And so, if God created you, 
And if, you, if the only reason you're breathing right now is because God allows you to, God's not far from you. Uh, that was the song we sang this morning, Everywhere I Go, you know? Like, you pray for nearness, but there's a sense that He is already near. He's right there. And so for these people groups that have never heard about Jesus, God is near to them. And when they seek Him, He sees into their heart and He says, I see you looking for Me. I'll be found. I see you seeking. And I love that. That's exactly what I want. I am not far from you. There's the Jeremiah 29.13. You will seek Me and find Me when you seek Me with all your heart. God loves it when the nations seek Him because He is so close. There's, there's people in the world that you will never meet in this life. There, there are remote places where they've never heard the name Jesus. But God is near to those people. You may never get near to those people, but God is near to those people, and He knows each one by name. And you've got to keep that in mind when we're, we're talking about the nations and how lost they are. Okay, those are the first three. Uh, you doing okay? Everything's pretty good, right? Ready for number four? Well, let me read the verse first before we put up number four. And, and then you'll see what a difficult uh, text we have in front of us to figure out. Um, okay, verse 29. Remember, not putting up four yet. We'll get there. Verse 29. Therefore, since we're God's offspring, we should not think the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design or skill. Verse 30. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So here's my question for you, my hot tub question. What in the world does it mean that in the past God overlooked the ignorance of the nations? He overlooked it. If you're in your King James Version, I think it says he winked at it. Oh my goodness. (laughs) King James. I don't like winked at. I don't think that helps us very much in understanding the text. Overlooked, though, isn't very easy either, is it? What do you do with this? He overlooked their ignorance. Some people will be tempted to say, um, this is universalism. You know, this means that God is going to save everybody. Whether they know Jesus or not, whether they heard about God in, in, in the times of Israel or not, He's just going to save them. But I don't find that idea anywhere else in the Bible, so I wouldn't possibly preach that. What does it mean to overlook ignorance? What does it mean to wink at it? The nations have at least a couple key revealers of who God is. So save point four for a second. And if we could put up Romans 1 instead. Um, the nations have creation. So this is Romans 1.18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. That does not sound like overlooking to me, just just so we're clear. Uh, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. God has made His nature plain plain to the nations. So overlooking ignorance does not mean God doesn't have wrath. 
worldwide flood would be an example of that, the flood of, of Noah's days. Israel going into the promised land, and God says, you know, their sin is piled high, and, and Israel goes in and judges them for the Lord. Um, there's still wrath. God's not winking at sin, but they're still ignorant of Him. And what Paul is saying is, they have creation. They can look around and say, I know that this stone tablet, this stone statue of this little guy, did not make everything. I know this little guy with very large ears, he didn't do it. You know, he's weird. I made that. I fashioned that. And now I'm bowing down to it. I know that the Creator of all this world would not want me to sacrifice my kids on an altar. That's what the nations did. They have creation. They have the goodness of God who brings the sun and the rain and the seasons and life and plants and animals. They get all this from God. The creation's there. Now they have a second thing. This is the next Romans passage. Uh, they have their conscience. Uh, Paul says, All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. All who sin under the law will be judged by the law. And then he goes on to say, Even the Gentiles who don't have the law are sometimes a law to themselves. You know, like they have the law on their hearts. It's like they do what is right even though they've never heard the Ten Commandments. They know they shouldn't lie. They know they shouldn't steal, even though they never heard the thou shalt not. They have a conscience. Have you ever heard someone say they ought to know better? Have you ever said, if I was in their shoes, I wouldn't have done that? I mean, there's just something in us that says, that's not right. As a society, we can say that. This just isn't right. Nations have a conscience. So, if they have creation, and if they have conscience, and if those things testify about God, and they do, then what does it mean God overlooked their ignorance? If God still holds you, because I see here, all who sin apart from the law will perish apart from the law. So if you never heard about Moses, and you lived in the B.C. times, this says you'll still perish apart from the law. If you never heard about Israel, you'll still perish Apart from the law. Have you ever heard about Jesus? Because you have a conscience and you're violating it. So what does it mean by God overlooked? You got an answer yet? You ready? <laughs> Number four. God overlooked the nation's ignorance by withholding final judgment. Final judgment. I get that from uh, verse 29 if you want to look at it. I'm sorry, uh, actually it's specifically in um, verse 31. For he has set a day when he will judge the world. The four there should tell you there's an explanation coming here. Like, Paul, that was a really hard word in verse 30 about overlooking ignorance. Please explain it. Well, I will. Verse 31. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. We know that's Jesus. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Jesus is not just the Savior, He's the judge of the world. And so God said, so what, what Paul is saying here is, final judgment's coming. God could have judged the world back then. 
God could have said, you nations that are worshiping idols, I'm wiping you off the face of the planet. I'm not just clearing out the promised land. I'm clearing out all the land. You're all done. I've had it with you. Final judgment starts now. And he would have been right to do that. But he's a gracious God. He's he's not slow in keeping his promises. He wants to give everyone a chance to repent. He wants to give the nations a chance to repent. He loves them. There's compassion. He's near them. He made them. He gives good gifts to them. And He wants them to know Him. So He overlooks their ignorance by not issuing judgment immediately on them. That's what I believe overlook means. I'm letting you go your own way for a time. Now there's still consequences to sin. There's still death. There's still wrath. There's still all those things. There's just not the final judgment yet on the nation. That's coming. I believe that is what overlook means. I'm waiting. Okay. So now I know you want to ask me a question, and so I'm going to ask it, and I'm going to answer it as best I know. If you lived in the times of Israel in the Old Testament, B.C., and you reached out for the Creator of the heavens and earth. And you never heard about Yahweh. You never heard about the Ten Commandments. You never heard about going to a temple in Jerusalem. You just reached out for the Creator God and said, I need you. What does God do with that? Based on this passage and others, it seems as if God will only judge you based on the revelation you have back then. And that if you reached out to Him, He would be near you, wouldn't He? And He might save you. I mean, that, that's just an opinion right now. That's just an opinion. You can come up to me with a different text and say, no, Niall, this is what the Scripture says, and I'll take a look at that, and, and we'll see if we can agree. If we disagree, that's okay too. I'll change my views if I need to. But, but my understanding right here, right now, is if you live B.C. and you reached out for the Creator God, that faith would be enough for the Creator. That, that's the best I, I, I can understand with what Paul is saying here. He's near. He's near. He wants you to seek Him. He wants you to find Him. That's what I see. The problem is sin is so insidious, it's so pervasive that the nations are going to worship idols. I don't know that there are many that are seeking Him. Some, yes. But they're worshiping idols. That's the pervasive culture of the nations, B.C. That's what they did. I let God judge and be the judge on things that I don't know. Okay. Let's go one step deeper. Truth number five. Finally, God now commands everyone everywhere, that's important, those two words, God commands everyone everywhere to repent because the final judgment is coming. I take this from um, verse 30, in the past God overlooked such ignorance, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. For He has set a day when He will judge the world with justice by the man He has appointed. 
So if I'm understanding this correctly, this is what I see going on. There are two ages that Paul's talking about here. An age of ignorance, which is before Jesus, and then there's this age of repentance, which is after Jesus dies and is raised from the dead. Two different ages. The age of ignorance is an age where if if the nations don't know God, He is overlooking ignorance. That time has passed. We're now in the age of repentance, where God's commanding every person everywhere in every nation to repent. It's different now. Jesus has come. Why do I say that? Well, first of all, I mean, the text says it. God commands everyone everywhere to repent. But let me give you a few other verses to help you understand this. Uh, Can we do Ephesians 3? Paul says, In reading this, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations. That would be the B.C. people, right? These are the people, the age of ignorance. It was not made known to men in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Jesus Christ. This is the mystery of God. When, when, whenever Paul writes about the mystery, what he means is, you thought Israel was God's people. It's also Gentiles. He's welcoming in the Gentiles. You and me, you're welcomed in, in Christ. And people in the past didn't know it. That's why it's a mystery. The, the people in, uh, you know, I think of like the Assyrians, the, the Ninevites, right, in Jonah's day. They, 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 they got a taste of this when Jonah preached to them. But, but they're welcome. They're welcome as the people of God. That's a mystery that's been revealed. This is a new age we're living in where all the Gentiles are called to be God's people. You're all welcome here. It's not just Israel. That's part of the answer, I believe. Um, and so I would say the conclusion then of all of this, how, how do I leave us with this? You know, um, we, all, we all are worried about the fate of the nations. My understanding is if a person dies without Jesus now, they're not going to be saved. They need to hear Jesus. And so the reason missions is so important to us is because the age of ignorance is over and the age of repentance is here. This is why we got to go. Because this time is over, this time has begun. It's kind of like if you lose someone in your family, someone in your family has died and they live out of state, you book the plane ticket, you get in the car and you start driving. It's like, i got to go. i got to go because this person has died. Or maybe, maybe you try to get there before they die. Maybe... Maybe they're in the hospital and, and you hear their time is close and you do what people do. You get in your car and you go. Because I want to see them before, before they go. I've got to be there. And this is the fate of the nations. They're dying without Jesus and we've got to go. We've got to go. Because they don't know. But God has called all people everywhere to repent. I lean on Romans a little bit again for my understanding of this. If we can pull up, um, is it Romans 10? Um, What do I got? Do I have another Romans passage for you? Can I have Romans 10, 13? There it is. Thank you. Um, Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. 
How then can they call on the one they've not believed in? How can they believe in the one they've not heard? How can they hear without someone preaching to them? This is our issue. What about those people that don't know? How are they going to know? How are they going to believe? What's going to happen to them? How can they preach unless they're sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. This should keep us awake at night. What's going to happen to these people? What do I need to do about it? What do I need to do about it? This is the age of repentance. I totally believe that if you, and there's story, missionary stories to um, also support this opinion of mine, that when a people group in a remote place calls out to God, God sends the missionary. He sends the light. The people in the darkness that are reaching out trying to grasp, God sends somebody to them. He gives dreams to people. Dreams about Jesus. You know, this is what our God does. He's near to each person. And you've heard stories like this. I totally believe those things. He sends missionaries. He sends dreams. People call out to Him. But we've got to have some beautiful feet in the church and we've got to go. And that means we've got to take off our comfortable shoes and put on other shoes and step in the mud and go. Step in the dirt. Leave the comforts of home and climate-controlled buildings and go. We've got to go. And so when people are worried, people in the church are worried about the fate of the nations, I say, I'm so glad you're concerned about their fate. Maybe you need to go. And a lot of times, I feel like the response is something like, well, you know, I just want to understand it theologically. God doesn't want to just have you understand it theologically. You don't walk out of the church and go, well, I'm glad I got that resolved. The nations are in trouble. The point would be, we got to go. You got to go. Some of you got to go. Some of you don't belong in this church anymore. You got to go. Because the nations need to hear. Our sovereign God is sending you. Some of you need to go here, stay right where you're at, and proclaim the gospel. Some of you stay here, and some of you need to go there. But wherever you go, you're the missionary. You're the missionary. I think I've talked about this before, but I can never stop talking about it. One of the most moving days of my undergrad years at Moody were missions conference. Because on the last day of the missions conference, the president of Moody would call people into missions. And people that were not at Moody, they're not majoring in missions. You know, they were at Moody, but they were majoring in something else, theology, pastoral work, whatever they were majoring in. And when, when they were called to go into missions that week, he would say, stand up if you're ready to change your major and go into missions. And I would look around and you'd see people standing up all around the auditorium. Like, first-time decisions. Today is the day I'm, I'm deciding I'm going to go. I don't think I'm going to do that here. But if you felt touched in your heart that you need to go, let's talk. Let's talk. And the rest of you, you need to go here. This is your mission field. You walk out the doors, that's the mission field. You go here. Let me pray. Worship team, you can come on up. And uh, I'd invite you to consider what you've heard today.
Lord Jesus, I pray you would call people from amongst us to go. I pray that this message would not just be us feeling better about theological truth in how you're interacting with the nations. We know you love them. We know you're near them. We know you're near the people of of London who are hurting. And we praise you for that. But we also know your calling. And so I pray that your voice might be heard today or heard online as people listen to this message that you would call people to go. And would you help us understand that you've called all of us to go wherever we're at. Thank you for your sovereign plan over the nations, over history. I'm so comforted that you can see into the heart and you can see someone reaching out for you. And I know that you're the kind of God that reveals himself. I trust you so much for that. I trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.